Lord God, in the next few moments, I want to talk about what you've given us that's contained in the Bible, your word. And Lord, I know that um, I could present a lot of evidence, a lot of statements of truth, a lot of arguments, but Lord, um, doesn't matter how good, uh, no one will be convinced unless they're convinced by you, convinced by your Holy Spirit. So Lord, I pray in this next few moments, Lord, for those who maybe haven't considered the reliability, how we can trust that your word is true as we find it contained in the Bible, Lord, that, that we would consider it. And Lord, that we'd no longer be tossed back and forth with doubt about it. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week I uh, spoke to you about the word of God being good. Today, before I speak about the word of God being true, I want to remind you of some of the claims that the Bible makes about itself. 2 Timothy 3.16, I just want to share the first part of it. All scripture is God-breathed. It comes from him, inspired by him. 2 Peter 1.21, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to God the Father in a prayer for us, for believers in the future. He said, set them apart for your use by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus also taught his followers saying, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And Isaiah 48 saying, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You know what? I have staked my life that the Bible, which contains the Word of God, is true. Reality defined by God, not by man. It is a faith statement that I'm making to trust that Scripture is God-breathed and that the Bible was recorded by men carried along by the Spirit. But what is faith? When I say I'm making a faith statement, what do I mean by that? Am I, is this just a fairy tale leap? Is this just a myth? What is it that I'm staking my life on? Well, again, I have to go back to the scriptures to define faith, not what the world says faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You see, faith does not exclude thinking or reason. God gave us a mind to think and reason with. My faith in the Bible containing the Word of God is based on evidence of things not always seen by every eye. I think and I believe that the reliability of the Bible is sure, whether looking at it historically, looking at it scientifically, archaeologically, or in comparison to man's works of literature or prophecy. It stands above all other writings as something unlike anything else, holy, eternal, and from God. Now, I didn't come to that conclusion overnight. I studied, I looked. But I, I, again, I, I told you earlier before that when I was 14 years old and I first started reading the Word of God, I didn't have a big debate about this. I just started reading it. And you know what? It came alive and it changed my life. It changed my heart. Now, after that, I had people question me. They said, how can you know that to be true? How do you know what, what's in there? How, how can you believe that? And then I began studying. I began looking at how do I know the Bible is, is to be true? So what I'd like to do is take a look at some of, these, some of this evidence that's there, that's outside the Word of God. So I won't be 
sharing with you verses from the Bible saying that what the Bible says about itself, but I'm going to be looking at things outside of it. So that's why I say, you know, I've, I've been into uh, uh, conversations with people. I've tried to give my best persuasive argument and it's come to nothing because the spirit of God wasn't doing anything in that person's life. And so I, I trust God to convince you. I'm going to do my best to share with you today, but it, it may not be enough because it's only enough when God's spirit is working in your heart and life to convince you of the truth of this. So let's take a look at this historical evidence of the Bible. The Bible, when you look at it, is always, uh, always recording places, cities, rivers, mountains, valleys, putting everything and every event in a place. Why is that significant? Well, because that's unlike mythical writings or legends, which give no specifics of where events occurred. The Bible puts things in a time and a place. The people recorded in the Bible were real people. There's many times you'll see the lineage of parents, grandparents, and the ancestors that are recorded. And many times we're like, why is this in here? This is so boring. But you know what? Again, it's saying this happened with real people in a real place in a real time. It may be boring to read through that, but, uh, you know, we see Jesus' mother and her lineage, uh, and it puts her in a time and place. It puts Jesus in a time and place. Did you know no one recorded the name of Buddha's mother or Muhammad's father and mother? The times and places of the people of Israel and the Christ followers that followed them can be verified by other historians also outside of biblical texts. Historians like Josephus, Tacitus, and then there's a bunch of others whose names I can't pronounce that are all Greek. Um, then you look at the historicity of the Bible and the reliability of the Bible. And that's also affirmed by archaeology. The cities, the valleys, the rivers, the mountains are where the Bible says they were. The Bible is accurate in pinpointing those places. And you can go visit some of those ancient cities where uh, new cities have built up around them and, and built around the ruins of the old. You can go to Jericho. You can dig up and see where the old ancient walls were from however many thousands years ago. You can go to Bethlehem and see David's tomb, his son Absalom's monument that he set up for himself when he overthrew his father David. You can go to Caesarea by the sea to the palace ruins where the apostle Paul was held prisoner and testified about Jesus. You know, for many years, there was no archaeological evidence that Pilate, the governor Pilate that sentenced Jesus to death, really existed. They couldn't find anything in Roman writings, ancient Roman writings. And for many times, people were casting doubt on, okay, did this story really happen? Did the crucifixion happen? Well, they couldn't find it until one day when they were renovating the Colosseum in Caesarea by the sea. And there was a worker who was turning over a stone slab that had been used as a stadium seat. And on the underside of that stone was engraved a dedication to, of the Colosseum to the governor, Pilate. One of the great archaeological finds in recent history. One of the greatest archaeological finds in recent history was of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. What was found by a shepherd boy throwing rocks up into the mouth opening of a cave. He was just doing target practice and he hit, some, hit something. It sounded like a broken piece of pottery. Got curious, climbed up there, found all these, these pots that were filled with old scrolls. 
what was later discovered and found was it contained over 500 different manuscripts that were collected by by ancient monastic Jewish community called the Essenes. This community had collected these ancient writings between 100 B.C. and 68 A.D., many of them being manuscripts of the Old Testament writings that were written between 800 B.C. and 200 B.C. It was some of the oldest complete manuscripts of Old Testament writings ever found. One of them being the entire book of Isaiah. You know, you know what they found when they examined that ancient text, that ancient manuscript of Isaiah, and compared it with our Bibles today? Word for word, correct. From 800 B.C. to today. That brings me to an error. An error that people seem to constantly make about the translation of the Bible into other languages. You know, it's true that the Bible has been read by more people and written in more languages than any other book in the world. More than 100 million Bibles are sold worldwide every year. But when the Bible is translated, it's not translated from English to Spanish to Quechuan to Aramaic and thus gradually losing its original meaning. It's not translated that way. The Word of God has always been translated from the original language it was written in to the people's spoken language. The Bible was originally written in Hebrew, most of our Old Testament, and it was written in Greek, most of our New Testament. So it goes from Greek to Spanish, Greek to English, Greek to Aramaic, or Hebrew to Quechuan, Hebrew to Spanish, Hebrew to English. This brings us to another reason why I think there's evidence for faith in the Bible, the consistency and the circulation of the manuscripts. Now, the Bible is written over a period of 1,600 years, spanning 60 generations of people with 40-plus authors from every work of life, peasants, kings, fishermen, philosophers, political leaders. Joshua was a military leader. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Luke was a doctor. Matthew was a tax collector. The Bible was written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, Europe, during war, peace, sorrow, and joy. Yet despite the diversity of culture, position of the writer's education and dialect, remarkably, the message is consistent with each other and the continuity of it speaks the same. God's redemption for man. Through and through, it is the story. The writers complement one another regardless of the apparent possibility due to the separation, due to their sheer distance and diverse life experiences that they had. The circulation of the manuscripts is something also to be mentioned. We don't have the original manuscripts written by the Apostle Paul or the prophet Isaiah. What we have are copies. But neither do we have the original manuscripts of the Iliad written by Homer. For that matter, we don't have anything original from Caesar, Plato, Sophocles, or Aristotle. So how do you know whether their writings we have handed down to us today are reliable? Well, the way literary scholars determine those writings to be reliable is by the date of the earliest copy of those writings and by the number of copies that were made. The more the copies, the more chances you have to compare and see where there are inconsistencies and differences. So Plato died, 347 B.C., and the earliest copy of one of his books is 980, a time span of 1,200 years. There are only 10 known copies of his book, Tetralogies, 
For Sophocles, the time span between the earliest known copy and his death is 1,400 years, but he has 193 known copies. Aristotle, there's a gap of 1,400 years, but only 49 copies of his work. Homer, in his work of the Iliad, is much more reliable because the time gap between his death and the earliest copy is only 500 years, and there are 643 known copies. So scholars would say that Homer's Iliad is more reliable than Plato's tetralogies. So how do the writings of the New Testament compare to that kind of scholarly literary test? Well, most of the original manuscripts, which we don't have, were written between 40 A.D. and 100 A.D. And the earliest copy that we have is dated 125 A.D., the time gap is only 25 years, 25 years, and there are over 24,000 known, studied, copied manuscripts. Along with this, the formation of the Bible and the approval of the books to be in it did not occur at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD like the fictional book, The Da Vinci Code, claims, all right? It's, it's a bogus claim. The truth is that most of the New Testament was already affirmed by 140 A.D. because of several heretics propagating their own false collection of books. And so the Christ followers had to rise up and say, no, this is what we verify to be the truth. In 303 A.D., 22 years before the Council of Nicaea, the Roman emperor Diocletian declared the destruction of the sacred book of the Christians. So it was already known what were the holy writings of the Christians and what were not before the Council of Nicaea? It's just bogus. You guys, we, we got to think. We got to examine these things that are presented to us. We just can't accept everything and go, oh, it's on TV. Oh, it's in a movie. Oh, it's in a book. It must be true. No. We got to research. We got to think. God gave us a mind to reason. Let's use it. So if you would like uh, to read more about the literary reliability of the Old Testament and New Testament, I really encourage you to read A Ready Defense by Josh, Mc, Josh McDowell. He'll provide a lot of stuff, with a, a lot of information with, with all the, the citations of where he's found it and where you can find it also. Now, I also think that the fulfilled prophecies recorded in the Bible give evidence for faith that the Word of God contained in the Bible is from God. You know, and just looking at the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, a person can see that these 322 prophecies were fulfilled by one man, Jesus. When you use math and the laws of probability, it's pretty crazy how one person could fulfill 322 prophecies. You know, people ask, well, what if they were fulfilled deliberately? I mean, Jesus could have read it and then tried to be it, tried to become it. Well, there are eight, eight prophecies for sure out of many, but there are eight prophecies for sure that he couldn't self-fulfill. He couldn't arrange on his own his place of birth. He couldn't arrange his own time of birth. He couldn't arrange his manner of birth. He couldn't really arrange his betrayal or else it wouldn't be a betrayal. He couldn't arrange his manner of death. There were other forms of ex execution. He couldn't make a deal with the Romans and say, please crucify me. Don't behead me. Don't hang me. Don't stone me, Jews. 
He didn't arrange the manner of his death. He didn't arrange the people's reactions to himself. He didn't arrange that how he was pierced. And he didn't arrange his own burial. Those are just eight. There's more that he couldn't arrange on his own. But there, those are just eight, to give you an example. Then people ask, well, what if these prophecies were fulfilled accidentally or, or by coincidence? Okay, well, just take eight. Just take those eight and use math to find out what are the chances of one man fulfilling just eight of those prophecies by accident. Well, the following probability was, was done by a mathematician named Peter Stoner to show ordinary people like you and me that coincidence is ruled out by probability. To fulfill just eight prophecies that he couldn't arrange, you would find that the possibility of accidental fulfillment would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 with 17 zeros. That's, that's more than a trillion. It, it, is in, it is 100. I had to look this up because I didn't know what came after a trillion. I, I suppose we should all know because pretty soon the government's going to be spending that much. But, um, but after trillions comes quadrillions. So it's one in 100 quadrillion chances for one man to fulfill eight prophecies. Now let me, again, Peter Stoner helped give this illustration because I, I don't even know how to fathom that kind of number. So he did this example to help, again, folks like you and me. He said, take 100 quadrillion silver dollars and put them all in the state of Texas. And that would result in silver dollars two feet high all through Texas, okay? So now take just one coin, mark it, toss it way out in the middle. Let's say it goes out and lands in around Plano, Texas, somewhere out in the central Texas. And then you blindfold a guy. We'll have him start in Houston. We'll let him wander for a few months. And then he gets to pick up one coin in the state of Texas. That would be the chances of one man fulfilling eight prophecies. Jesus fulfilled 322. So there's historicity, there's the archaeology, there's scholarly, scholarly literary test, there's prophecy fulfilled. What other evidence supports my faith that the Word of God is contained in the Bible? Why have I staked my life on the claim that the Word of God is true? It's because, another reason, it's because of the millions of lives that have been changed by the message contained in the Bible. The Bible has been translated into over 3,000 languages. People who opposed the message of God and then encountered the message, the living word, were transformed from skeptics into champions of the word of God. People like the Apostle Paul, people like Augustine, like St. Patrick, like G.K. Chesterton, like C.S. Lewis, Malcolm Muggeridge, Josh McDowell, Alistair McGrath, Lee Strobel, great thinkers and scientists who use much more of their brain than I ever will, encountered the Bible and believed it to be the Word of God and aligned their lives to it. Men like Pascal, Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, Pasteur. There are those who read the Word of God and were inspired to overcome evil with good. William Wilberforce, because of his faith, ended the slave trade in the British Empire. Martin Luther King followed the ways of Jesus to oppose unjust treatment of black people in the United States by white people in the United States. Then there are those who believe that the Bible contained the Word of God 
and they died because of that message in the Word of God. Every one of the apostles suffered persecution. All but John were killed for trust in the Word, in the Gospel. The first Christ followers were always under the threat of persecution and death in the Roman Empire for holding to the Word of God, holding to the truth that Jesus is Lord and not capitulating to the the polytheistic beliefs around them. I do not think that the apostles nor the first Christ followers would have died for something false. Today we can see the power of the word of God changing lives as more and more people in the southern and eastern hemispheres turn to Christ. In 1900, 80% of Christians lived in northern in the northern and western hemispheres. Mostly Caucasians. Now, 80% of Christ followers live in the southern and eastern hemispheres, mostly non-Caucasians. The word of God is spreading rapidly. Many are believing. Many of them face suffering because of their belief in the Bible. In India, in China, in Indonesia, in Nigeria, Sudan, Iraq, and Iran. On March 7, 2010, just a few months ago, in Dogo Nahawa, a small village in Nigeria, 500 Christ followers were slaughtered men, women, and children because of their faith. On February 4th, 2010, 60 military authorities raided a Christian home in Amirmi's Morocco. They arrested 13 people and interrogated 19 believers for over 14 hours. Christ followers in Pakistan have recently been arrested for distributing Bibles. Why? Because the Bible contains a powerful message, the message of Christ, which results in freedom and forgiveness and peace. There are people willing to give their lives to share the Word of God, to share the Bible with others. The message has transformed their lives and is continuing to transform lives today. I think there is evidence for my faith that Scripture is God-breathed and inspired by the Holy Spirit. There is the historicity. There is the archaeology. There is the literary test, the prophecy fulfilled, and there are lives that have been and now being transformed. I think and I believe that the word of God contained in the Bible is true. And I will align my life to it. Now, if you're asking questions in your mind like, what does he mean by true? How far does he go with that? I'll go as far as Jesus does. I'd like to tell you more about that, how far Jesus went with the word of God. Or maybe you're asking questions in your head like, what about the uses of of language like metaphors, similes, allegory, poetry, and parables? It's a good question. What if you find yourself often saying, oh, uh, I think that might be one of those errors in the Bible. I, I don't know if Jesus really said that. Or maybe you're saying in your head, isn't that just his or her interpretation of the Bible, then I'd really like you to hear the message next week on the power and the authority of the Word of God. I really just want us to take time and look at how Jesus viewed Scripture and how he responded to it, how he talked about it. But today, today the significance of what we talked about here and all this is that you need something to base your faith upon. You can't just base your faith upon the thin air. 
You, you say that the basis of your faith is Jesus, and that's true. It should be. It should be for all of us. But how do you know what you know about Jesus? Did you get it from Captain Kangaroo, Mr. Green Jeans, Mr. Rogers, Sesame Street? Where'd you learn what you know about Jesus? How do you know it to be true? It's important where you get your information about Jesus. It's important that that source that you learned about Jesus is accurate, that it's reliable. There's a moment when all of you, if you haven't already, will have to decide whether the Bible is true or not. If not, you're going to be tossed back and forth in the Christian faith. You're going to be back and forth. You won't be able to stand anywhere. You need a place to stand. It's going to be one of the biggest decisions you will ever make in your life. So don't, don't take it lightly. Do your own research. Ask the questions. Read the Bible for yourself. Don't accept the opinions of the so-called experts. You're the one who needs to determine, are you going to believe it's true? Right now, uh, band's going to be coming up. We're going to be moving into a time where, of worship. We're going to take time to be still before God. We're going to take time as we sing these lyrics that we sing often every Sunday are from the Word of God, and we believe them to be true. And as we sing, it's, it's an act of worship coming from our hearts and our minds. And in this time, there's going to be some people that are going to be around the perimeter of the room holding a goblet of juice representing Christ's blood, a plate of unleavened bread that represents his body. We're going to be doing a thing called communion. It's a special meeting that Jesus arranged for his followers and him. A time where he said, I want you to remember me, to remember his sacrifice on the cross. It is a moment for us that's special. Uh, we want to invite you to be a part of it if you're, if you're new here. Um, this isn't about belonging to a certain church. It's about belonging to Jesus. And so if you belong to Jesus, if you can say, yeah, he is my Savior, he is my Lord, then we invite you to participate. It's okay also if you just want to observe, if you just want to watch. That's all right, too. So as the song is played, anytime you can get up, go around to the perimeter room and, and take communion. Right now, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your Spirit to indwell us. Thank you for the sacrifice on the cross. You're good. You're great. And what you did there with your mercy and justice all mixed together is sometimes hard for us to comprehend. But Lord, we trust and know that you demonstrated your love there for us and that we can rely upon what you did there for us at the cross. So Lord, we come today in simple faith saying that we trust that you were our substitute there on the cross. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.